Transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Well, it's getting dark out. You might say night has fallen on the desert. And I want to talk with you for just a moment here about the subject of intuition. Desert intuition, in this case. This is one of those intuitions that you always go with. And there's no penalty if you're mistaken. When I'm walking in the desert mountains, like I do fairly often, I get that feeling sometimes early in the morning and at dusk. The times of the day when the one real predator I occasionally worry about is very active. I'm talking about mountain lions. Now, I've only ever seen a couple of them in the wild, in the flesh. They are a rare sight. And when you say something like that, there are always a couple of people either bragging about how they see mountain lions every time they open their eyes. Or they're going to chime in with something like, actually, the most active time for a mountain lion is nautical twilight, etc. And that, friends, is why I prefer to live very far away from other people. So imagine you're out here. Out here in one of these places where I like to walk alone with nobody else. And you get that feeling, that eerie intuition. That somebody or something or something or other is watching you. Hikers on the Pacific Crest Trail will wrap a towel around the back of their neck. Just walk around with a towel around their neck like a prize fighter. They are the prize, or so they imagine. Mountain lions don't often bother people. Not a favorite meal. But now and then we all have to eat. Even if what we would like to eat is unavailable. At such times, people sometimes get an intuition. A hunch. A feeling in their gut. And when I get that particular feeling... Well, that's when I start singing. And I start whacking my walking stick a little harder on the ground, too. Make a little noise. And what do I sing? Well, that's none of your business. Maybe a Linda Ronstadt song. Maybe something by that Billie Eilish. Billie Holiday. Or Willie Dixon. Maybe some somber Gregorian chant. Just kind of walk to the beat of it. You just kind of walk to the beat of it. The silent beat. Silent beat. Holy beat. As they all start singing... This time of year. Do you ever feel so beat that all you can do is keep going? You're too beat to even stop. Because if you stop, you know in your heart 
that you just might not start again. You just might fly the coop. George Knapp, the legendary reporter on the Weird Beat at KLAS-TV in Vegas. I'll call George my friend now, even though we've only ever hung out in person a couple of times. But they were all memorable times. Especially when we went hunting petroglyphs with his chief photographer, Matt Adams. And my alien brother, Jeremy Corbell. They just dropped Jeremy off up here in Pioneer Town one day. When Jeremy was just a baby, I think. And he was raised by coyotes or maybe old John Barrymore. Old John Barrymore, who used to live in the... The place they call the Pioneer Town Motel now. And I'm pretty sure that was the last place he lived. Haunted by John Barrymore. Which room is that? I'll take that one. And maybe a bottle of whiskey. Well, George Knapp has launched his mysterywire.com. His new website, an archive of all this bizarre stuff he's done. The interviews with the UFO people. The weird mafia murder stuff. Cattle mutilations. I'd love to spend a couple of episodes just on the cattle mutilations. Which are ongoing. There's another flap happening now up in Eastern Oregon. So go visit georgenapsmysterywire.com and if you have the time, watch some of his new special called UFO's Best Evidence. It can really get you up to speed. And I'm not kidding. The series that he did 30, 30 years ago, it really covers a whole crazy scene. We're going to get George on the program with us eventually and get some stories from America's strangest state, the Silver State, Nevada, Battleborn. As for you, welcome to the Mojave Desert. And if you live here, welcome home. How'd you end up out here? Don't answer out loud. I hear you, but I cannot get the specifics. We're not in the same place, you and I. Not entirely. On Friday nights here in Joshua Tree, here in the whole high desert from Amboy to Zizek's, and by that I mean from Pioneer Town to Wonder Valley and everywhere in between, you can turn on your radio at 10 p.m. and you're going to hear a radio show. And what we're talking about is what's going on in these desert skies at night. Did you see the SpaceX wagon train of little satellites? We saw them pretty good out here over 29 Palms. So those are explained. Explained as far as what they are not explained to the satisfaction of astronomers who 
like all of us who love to look at the night sky are not completely thrilled about having Elon's little internet balls everywhere. But what about what is not explained? What's that mysterious howling that appears to be coming from your garage? Let's scratch it at the screen door. Who's buried under the bathtub? Why do weird robotic voices keep calling you in the night? And why do they ask you to let them in? UFOs, Yucca Man, Haunted Lands, Weird Creatures, Occult Rituals, Shrieking Monstrosities, and that maddening hum. What is that? What is that low rumble? That buzz. That buzzing sound. Dear God, they're here all around us, aren't they? Well, they've always been here. They were here before us. Some say they made us. Well, a lot of ideas people have. And did you know that you can join the Desert Oracle Institute for as little as $2 a month? $2? Even I have $2 a month. You go to our website, desertoracle.com, the same website where you can subscribe to our beautifully printed, pocket-sized field guide to the haunted American desert, and you click Become a Patron right up top. Oh, we've got levels, too. We've got levels, tiers. We appreciate you listening and reading. But if you just have to have more stuff, more content, come on over to DesertOracle.com. summer to read this monster book all about the possibly alien communications and phenomena experienced by some of the most interesting cultural figures of the 1970s. Countercultural, I guess they were, but today we remember counterculture people like Philip K. Dick and Terrence McKenna, Robert Anton Wilson, a lot more than we generally remember whatever variety show was on the TV back then. Except for Watergate. Now everybody acts like they remember Watergate. This book I'm talking about is called High Weirdness. It's out now in paperback, which is a good thing because I think the hardcover is all gone, the first edition. The author of this book has been a particular favorite of mine for probably going on two decades now since I first read his fantastic and poetic contribution to the 33 and a third book series, a book about how a wildly popular rock and roll album brought the mystery and delight of ritual magic and sigils and all that fun stuff to teenagers and suburban bedrooms. And here's the thing, we aren't even going to talk about these books necessarily, but we will wander some weird paths together with Eric Davis. That's Eric with a K. Welcome back to Desert Oracle Radio. Happy to be here. It has been a little while since we spoke, and you've had a 
busy time out on the road promoting high weirdness and now you're ready for the next phase of your life the next 10 years is that correct it is actually a real ju- uh, juncture for me i mean in some ways i've been high weirdness is the result not just of you know, years of getting a PhD and then before that years of doing research on these guys and really decades of work, particularly on on Philip K. Dick and thinking about this whole period of time. Uh, so it, it really is in, in a way kind of sums up a lot of my whole professional career. And it also kind of feels like I finally cleared my throat. Like I'm ready to go and like talk in a different way and a in a different mode, and I'm not really sure what that is yet. And I'm not I'm not rushing in. I've got a couple of sort of small to mediumish projects, you know, bubbling along into the uh, next year. But I'm not I'm not trying to lay on the next uh, heavy duty commitment, uh, which is partly also why my uh, podcast continues to be uh, in hiatus. It just hiatuses can can drift and find their own way through time and I'm okay with that because uh, I've been working pretty hard (laughs) I want to have a little bit of a a refresh to sort of see what what comes next you have been working hard and having that time that pause is something almost nobody wants to allow anyone creative to ever have so you often have to just kind of claim it for yourself. When I left Gawker Media for the last time, I think in 2014, all I really knew then is I did not want to do that anymore. And I had to wait a while to see what was going to kind of bubble up to tell me which direction to go in after that. So I just, I spent a lot of time driving up and down California through the Eastern Sierra, going to monasteries that took guests and camping and going to weird religious sites and petroglyph sites and things like that. And eventually it took about a year and a half, but eventually I kind of knew what to do. It just sort of appeared there and nobody else really knew about it, which was very fun. Yeah, and you're right that it's it's really hard to do uh, these days because you have, you know, and partly for good reasons, like if you, you know, we're in that long tail world where, you know, weirdos like you and me can develop not only a following, but, you know, begin to have you know, lots of communication with people who like what we do. And so you have a sense of like a community that your material is working with. And so when you when you stop, it's it, it feels like a, a little mean, you know, and, and especially people. Oh, I love it. I love it. And you're like, oh, I'm taking away their their joy. Um, and of course, there's there's other joys and other people and more people or different people, you know, for any potential future project but uh that and and on top of the sort of the the kind of ambiance of intense competition that is just you know suffuses like all of our activities today as you know capitalism gets ever deeper into the even you know the underground or you know fringe media or media that people do even when they're not making any money off of it blah 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 uh, that air, that that sense of competition is like, oh wait, I got I got to hold my ground, got to hold my ground, you know, got to got to keep moving. But you know, maybe in this case, some of the uh, that the sort of startup logic of you try something and it fails, and then so what? Then you like integrate it into the next thing. You like you let things fall apart and renew, kind of more of a phoenix uh, attitude about it. And uh, so yeah, it was. It took me a long time to, to even go on a hiatus with expanding minds. Like oh man, you got an audience, you know, it's not huge, but it's not small, and you got to hold on to it because it's a rough world out there, podcasting man, and there's people doing stuff like you, and you know. And then I'm like ah, screw that. You know, that's not a way to, to, to move forward as an artist. I mean, that's why it's like, I think, important for people like you and me who 
aren't exactly making art in the traditional sense of the term. And probably, I don't know about you, but I don't think of myself as an artist, even though in some ways what I do is, is from an artist's motivation and has art as opposed to just journalism or scholarship or history or even cultural criticism in it. There's something more going on. But it's sometimes hard to act like an artist. So, like the way I was like that about artists, they can just stop. Of course, they have the same problem. You know, you start, you just, you're making weird stuff, nobody cares, and then you like start to like, you know, whatever, make, uh, uh, you know, uh, assemblages out of out of uh, Legos and you know, Cabbage Patch Kids, and you add wax, and people love them, and you start cranking them out. People love them. You're finally making money. People, oh my God, this stuff's genius. And then you're like. I don't ever want to make one of those again. And then you right. and your gallery and everyone's like, dude, look, where's the, what's up with the next Couch Patch Lego uh, assemblage? And you're like, uh, uh, you know, and so it's, it's a, it's a problem there too of like, Oh, really high desert artist who, who knows the, the tourist world and who's on the art tours and things like that. If they get any kind of, repeat customers or success they get boxed right into whatever it is you know this one does cut up license plates this one does joshua trees made out of old uh, dental floss and you're stuck with it you got to pay rent yuppers so here's something i wanted to ask you about because it's been bothering me Bothering? Not quite bothering. It's been haunting me since I put your book away, and it next goes to Jay Babcock, by the way. I Excellent. only spent about uh, three or four months with it until I finally complete. It was one of those things that had to be read only when I could give it my full attention. I didn't want to be flipping through it like a New Yorker that I was just going to leave unfinished on the the table under a coffee cup for six months. But after I put it down, I did start to notice something. And I think the reason why it stuck in my mind was because we've talked before about how you did not want to get stuck in the 70s for the rest of your life, like an oldies DJ or something. And it's this period right now seems to be as weird as the period that you were writing about and there are so many bizarre parallels and having lived through that gap as we both did I don't think I'm projecting because I specifically remember being very bored at various points during various decades and feeling like the interesting stuff happened at another time and all of a sudden, interesting, both horrific and perhaps good, it all feels like it's here again. What do you think about that? I think that is accurate. In fact, it's it's. I've had a sort of recently a very interesting um, kind of ominous sense because the the latest edition of New York Magazine. Uh, I, I got it on my Twitter feed because the, the cover art by Robert Beatty is really awesome and also very 70s. It reminds me of some of the Carlos Castaneda covers, uh, especially a separate reality. Uh, and and the cut the title of it in in kind of um, sort of uh, I don't know the name of the font but it's a recognizable kind of 70s uh, two different 70s fonts I think or maybe one but they kind of change it and it says the weirdness is coming an issue about the future oh, and boy. for me for me this has really been a, a you know a, a kind of creepy confirmation and I, I re, I've looked through one or two of the articles in there and some of them are just things that I was like yeah I've been yeah that's that's what I've been thinking about for a long time so and it's not about like getting uh, appropriate or anything like that I don't care about that and I don't even think it's true I just think that I it, there's this sort of a zeitgeist twist that we're now that we're now in and in that ways you know it's like we're, we can't get out you know I, I could say I don't want to get stuck in the 70s but we can't get out <laughs> so yeah so, you know, I, I, I accept that side of it. I think what I meant more was I didn't want to, you know, keep mining the period for another sort of obscure 
you know, block of cultural material that I could kind of hermeneut my way through and, you know, produce some media based on that. Uh, intensity. That's kind of the, the temptation for someone like me is that I can keep doing history or, you know, we talk about somebody else's work or you, you draw connections between different things in time. And, it, you know, it's super fun. I love doing it. I love reading it. But I don't want to spend my whole life doing that. I also that, that whole idea of clearing my throat is also like, well, what do I got to say? Or like, what, what's a little bit more direct? What's a little bit more riding the moment or, or speaking directly to the moment? And I always like to use other cultural materials that I'll, I'll always have a little bit of a collage going in whatever I do. But it's kind of like a shift in in, in focus. So in a way, it's more about how do I bring these 70s concerns and things I've thought about in a way that I think a lot of other people haven't, but are now even more relevant. How do I bring that forward and talk to our contemporary moment um, with that, that sense of historical resonance in the picture? Uh, so it's kind of like a sort of inverting the, foc- the, the foci or something, uh, but not necessarily like leaving, leaving the 70s completely in the, in the dust. Welcome back to Desert Oracle Radio. Let's continue our conversation with Eric Davis, author of High Weirdness. Now, you've done a lot of work, as you mentioned, on Philip K. Dick and his work, and I'm sure you noted the month and the year that we are currently in. Oh, wait, man. Maybe I haven't. Oh, we're, what are we in? We're in, uh... So the, the film adaptation of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep starts oh, off... Oh, that's right. That's right. November 2019. Yeah. Yeah. We're here. We're not we quite here. there, but we are here. And <laughs> I wonder if it means anything or if it's just one of these kind of almost random dates that if you live long enough, they come up. But I don't remember one that I ever got such a kind of 
weird kind of the hair stood up on the back of my neck kind of thing when I saw, I believe on Twitter, someone posted that that frame from Blade Runner that said November 2019, you know, the day after Halloween. I was sitting down at the Palm Springs Ace Hotel after a, a show and I thought, well, here we are. Yeah, it's true. Here we are. Wacky. And it's not obviously that world, but it's not completely not that world. And the uncanny and the sense of overwhelming doom and gloom and evil and does all seem to be there and I'm wondering if now that you're kind of relaxing your brain and looking around to see which road it's going to go down what do you think people like you are going to do as the let's say the darker forces seem to be energized and much more upfront than I ever remember Oof, that is a really good question. You know, I, um, I've been thinking lately about kind of solutionism, you know, the tendency that if you, you know, if you're having a, if you're talking about our current moment and you're looking at it directly, that, that we should be talking and thinking and, and analyzing and criticizing in, in light of a, a solution. What are we going to do? You know, what are we going to do about climate change? What do we do about the, collapse of uh, democracy what do we do about the rising fascism what do we do about uh, you know radical r- racism structural racist system you know and so everyone's everyone kind of argues and, and and puts forward their plan and has a position and all that stuff and there's so many people doing that and uh, you know even though uh, there's asked parts of that you know game that attract me I'm, I'm also interested in sort of a a parallel situation which is in a way that's neither in a way that's kind of beyond hope and and fear just both that you're like okay we're in a you know this major kairos point and uh it's not really clear where the 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 the, the forces of light or good or or uh human yumminess are being uh supported uh as so many dark forces become ever more visible what do you what do you do and uh maybe there's a a sort of it's somewhat different focus where what kind of concerns me in a way is something small that's also great which is how do you keep the light alive in people yeah and 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 that's not about the solution to the problem which may not have a solution or it may have solutions that are impossible for us to, to to really manifest at this point. And if you say that directly, it sounds like you're cynical, like you're just you're fatalistic, you're nihilistic, whatever. And that's not what I mean. But I, I, I do feel like there's more work to be done in some ways on keeping the you know keeping the light that's already in your network alive and thriving so that it kind of keeps sort of trickling out into you know the people that might listen to me then are talking to other people that I don't talk to and we just sort of keep it kind of going and in in a way it's it's a kind of small vision because it's not about you know getting tens of thousands of new followers and becoming an you know famous or becoming huge hits and all that it's it's almost more like my my responsibility is is sort of to the people who are already kind of listening to me and anybody who jumps on the on the the you know the bandwagon which isn't much of a bandwagon it's kind of a dorky little you know hand-drawn cart with like bells and gongs on it kind of i'll take it jalopying down the dusty road you know but like that that's enough you know to 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 kind of like how do you stay alive and awake and not not get drawn into these magnetic forces of fear or reaction or attention capture um in a way to be more 
uh, I don't know. Like I, I, I've lately, I've been really, you know, it, kind of in a way that's going against my earlier claims to trying to get out of the 70s is I've been really fascinated with Carlos Castaneda again. But I want to I want to say why, because Castaneda is an interesting character. In some ways, those books are some of the most interesting examples of a culture in the 1970s. And they're often lumped together with the New Age. They'll say like, oh, New Age authors like Carlos Castaneda. And you're like, well, He's part of that alternative spirituality thing in the 70s and kind of and later on became, you know, essentially a cult leader of a weird cult that went south. And he did silly things like pretend he was immortal and that they were going to be able to find portals into the afterlife by doing these magical passes and all this kind of kooky. Uh, so there's, it's not like I mean, there's a lot of problems in the story, but there's something about those books that are profoundly un-New Age that um, speak to me about our, our moment. And, and one of them is that they take place in an amoral universe. It's not a, 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 a universe of, of certainly overwhelming good, and there are definitely implications of dark and freaky things. And a lot of it is about a sort of psychedelicized, Californiaized version of a genuine indigenous worldview. Like, you know, people say, oh, the books are made up. It's all a bunch of horses just appropriating. And you're like, yeah, that's that's kind of true. But it's kind of not true in the sense that the dude, you know, was studying shamanism at the most important center for the study of shamanism in any anthropology department, I think in the pretty much in the world, certainly in America or in the West, maybe in Russia, they were studying Siberian shaman. I don't know. But in terms of the United States, UCLA in the early 1960s was the hotbed. Uh, and so they were looking at it. They were trying to figure it out. And while there's always problems with anthropology, I think there's one element that really comes through. And I, I talk about this a little bit in High Weirdness where there's a, a, a fellow grad student of, of Castaneda's who went on to be a, a normal anthropologist who, who didn't write fiction and sell it as truth and make gazillions of, of dollars. This guy named Lowell Bean who studies California shamanism. And he wrote this one essay, I think in the, I think in the 70s, maybe a little bit later, that was um, rather than being about a specific uh, tribe or group or practice, you know, a lot of anthropology is very specific with one, you know, staying close to the ethnographic details. He kind of generalized about like, what, what, what can we say about the role in this case of power in the indigenous worldviews that he was familiar with, mostly in California within the framework of shamanism. And it was this idea of an amoral universe in which things have power. And the power itself is amoral. It can go one way, it can go both another way. And that in such a world where there are multiple agents of varying motivations, some of which are nefarious, some of which aren't, you have to kind of be savvy and be willing to form tricky alliances. Uh, and that you don't there's, it's not a world of like, oh, here you follow this ethics of good and then the world will get better. Or you must be completely paranoid and unwilling to deal with any of the dark forces because they're going to swallow you up. Instead, it's more of this sort of tricksy uh, ambiguity uh, that, that to my mind seems a, a kind of appropriate as a mind frame to, to uh, think about today. There's there's a quote in Journey to Ixlan, which is a, a one of my favorites, possibly my favorite of the of the first few the ha first handful of Castaneda books. I haven't read all the all the later ones. I got I got kind of bored. Um, although I'm kind of interested in returning to them possibly. But Don Juan says one must assume responsibility for being in a weird world. We're in a weird <laughs> world, you know. Yes, you know? we are. And he, you know, and then, and then, like, you know, Castaneda says, "Oh, I don't know. What do you mean?" And, da, da, da. and he goes, "No, no, it's not weird the way you think it is. You know, it's weird." And he goes, "My, my interest. It's weird because it's wondrous and bizarre and and unknowable and and unnerving." And his interest, he goes, "My interest has been to convince you that you must assume responsibility for being here 
in this marvelous world, in this marvelous desert, in this marvelous time. And there's something about that, like you're in a weird world, but the weird also is a route to the marvelous. It's just that it's not all, all uh, you know, uh, unicorns and, and butterflies, and that there's something about assuming responsibility for being in a weird world that seems really key to me. And that kind of like individual, almost individualist sense of responsibility, but I don't mean it in like a libertarian way. I just mean that that there has to be a kind of crystal or kernel inside the self that's like, yes, this is where I am. I am in a weird world. I'm not going to look away from the weirdness. I'm going right. to keep staring at it. I'm going to not hide. I'm not going to pretend that there's a happy, fluffy castle that I can retreat to. I'm not going to de- pretend that there's a solution in any obvious sense to any of the major issues that we're dealing with. But I'm going to keep my eyes open and stay awake and be willing to deal with amoral and confusing forces as me and mine and the values that I hold and try to navigate this world. And that to me seems like something worth kind of in- intensifying and, and inviting people to go through their own kind of initiatory darkness of like, here we are. It's not going back. If the worst things don't happen, then the weird ones still definitely will. Uh, and so, you know, buck, you know, whatever, buckle up. If you want to think about it that way, try to be fascinated because at least fascination has some, has some energy in it. that's not just dread and, and fear and master your fears as much as you can. And my, that might be by being practical, like actually preparing for, you know, disasters. If you want to like take your little baby steps down the survivalist path and try not to get swallowed up by true paranoia, but like, you know, go to your, you know, go to the fire state, sorry, fire station and figure out, you know, how to help people when, if the, you know, if, if the building falls apart or whatever, but right. also just internally, you know, the way that like you can't be a, a real psychonaut without having mastered your fears. And it's like, those kinds of fears that I believe are, are a lot of what we're experiencing, even if they have concrete, realistic sources like climate change, the way we experience fear as it's mediated through the, uh, through the Internet and social media and, and pop memes and, and basically brainwashing that's coming at us from all of these different nefarious agencies, the way we experience fears is not so rational. It's still more of this like shamanic night night side nightmare cruise and so it's not about pretending that there isn't aren't rational reasons to be afraid there are but being more honest about how we experience those fears which i think has a lot more to do with our unwillingness to kind of step up to the kind of responsibility that don juan is talking about which is kind of hard ass it has a warrior element it has a commitment to being awake, to keeping your eyes open, to not believing that it's clear who's a good guy and who's a bad guy, and just accepting on some basic level that that's our situation right now. So this is a, a, a sort of psychic armor that we're talking about, and I think the people who are surviving this era perhaps with the, uh, the the least terrible wounds are the ones who have learned the ability to stop looking at the wider world and having this delirium of outrage and worry and this constant distress because things are for whatever reason not your definition of normal anymore any longer and yet at the same time i've never seen so many people or seen evidence because you don't see the people of people retreating to an almost non-stop diet of fictional television and ordering in and Uh, just kind of retreat from the world that besides the social isolation, which is dangerous to your mental and physical health, 
you're missing out on the things that are still going on. Like I remember Leonard Cohen when he was up at Mount Baldy at the Zen Center telling somebody when he'd come down to his little house in Fairfax, yeah, it's nice up there, but all the wicked stuff in the world is happening right here in Los Angeles, and I got to be right in the thick of it. Yep, yep. That's a, a to me. It's a really, uh, in a way, that's a, a a classic sort of Zen approach. <laughs> you know, which you're like, I'm not going to look away from the the crux or the confusion. You know, and it, I'm not going to go. If you're going to go up to the mountain, it just means you're going to have to come down again. Uh, and and another way that I'm thinking about it is, there's nothing wrong with feeling good. There's nothing wrong with feeling joy. There's nothing wrong with entertainment or smoking weed and chilling out or all of those, you know, or, or you know, saying, screw it, I'm, I'm not going to go out. I'm just going to stay home and, and, you know, make love and drink wine or whatever. But I, I for me, it's like it's it's kind of embedding those things in, in a, a different frame, which is not a framework of escape. But a framework, almost like in a in a video game, where you're you know you're you're getting low on your your hit points or your health points or whatever, and you gotta like gobble up some apple golden apples that come your way. So you, you know, so that the the things we do for re- relaxation or entertainment or hedonism or whatever are very clear in our own minds that th- these are like nourishment that enables us to then the next time we're in the crux of the nightmare or looking at the thing in its face or watching how our own robotic reactivity uh, responds to the prompts that are coming in through media and really sitting with the challenges of that, that we have some juice to be able to, to do it and not just spin out into suicidal nihilism or pessimism or, 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 or to submit to just pure anger, you know, the way that like, I mean, the, the, the anger of like paranoid, you know, whatever, right wing nativist racists and the, the anger of hardcore, you know, social justice, like, you know, the, the just the vitriolic anger for the other side, like th- those angers, are, they're not that different. I'm not saying that the that the arguments aren't any different. They are. And I definitely have my preferences. But the the seduction into anger and the kind of sense of agency that gives you is really important for people to reflect on. Not, not that most of them will, because people don't reflect that much, but the people who are capable of it, I think that's really called upon us to do, which is to recognize that the, the, wor- the, the kind of world of quote-unquote mind control that we're in, the kind of brainwash we're in, is not just about ideas. The, 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 the emphasis on meme is, is kind of misplaced in some way, because it implies that the viral What's, what, what the virus is is some concept, some word, some symbol, some idea, some piece of ideology, some perspective, some political perspective, you know, that, that, that uh, whatever, uh, undocumented immigrants are vermin or something like that. But un- below all of those concepts and memes are emotions or affects, you could probably better call them like the, the sort of non-symbolic dimension of emotion. And we're constantly being prodded and tickled and seduced and frightened and enervated on that emotional affect level. And that's the level that to me, we got to start paying more attention to. You have to be, and that means being willing to be sitting in your own anger, your own fear, your own paranoia, and just like, what does it taste like? How does it work? How does it come and go? And just, it's not a judgment thing. It's not good or bad. It's just what's happening. Because when it's only when we do that, that we start being less reactive to all the prompts that come our way. And that's as much about the kind of social mind control as any particular concept or, you know, whatever, Illuminati symbolism hidden in the video, man. It's that the whole environment of fear and paranoia that's inculcated by the YouTube video that tells you about the Illuminati symbolism in the hip hop video, that's where the action is. It's not in the story about a symbol.
Tell me something quick before we let you go. First, tell me where we can find the paperback of High Weirdness. Well, I, you know, I would I would go into your your local store and, and order it if they don't have it because that just distributes them. But it's it's out and about. MIT Press is well distributed, and uh, uh, so it should it should be around. I just went into my local shop, uh, Green Apple on the on the park, and they had it all nice out there on the new nonfiction. And maybe I'll feel all gushy inside, and I signed the copy. So they're out there, uh, and. Uh, you know, it's a bit of a it's a chewy book, but I like to think that it's it's entertaining enough and and it's worth the, the the work. Oh, it's worth the work. It is definitely worth the work. Tell me one more thing before we say goodbye today to Eric Davis. What is the desert in the Castaneda books? What role does the desert play? Hey, that's a good one. You know, we've talked about the desert before. I know we're both into it as both a, an actual place of, of, of creatures and amazing flora, as well as a symbolic space, and, and, and ultimately, especially for Westerners, a religious space. And one of the things I like about the desert in the Castaneda books, which is very much the Sonoran Desert, uh, but I think applies to, to other deserts as well, and certainly the Mojave, because if we remember that part of Castaneda's influence was not only a California school of anthropology, but a school that paid a lot of attention to indigenous California forms of shamanism and, and other religious ritual, that there's a, a distinctly Mojave-ish uh, tinge to the desert uh, that they're in, in investigating, but I like to think about it as sort of like the desert in the American, uh, American, the Western imagination is has sort of two poles, where our our sort of original religious story of Christianity and, and Judaism and uh, sort of arises in the desert framework. And that that's sort of the beginning. So the monks who go out into the Sinai, you know, in the couple of centuries after Christ, and they say, screw the city, I'm going to go and hang out here in, in a rock cave. And that's where monasticism comes, Western monasticism comes from, uh, that kind of experience and wrestling with all the demons and the strange spirits of the desert. And that's sort of the beginning of our story. And it kind of ends, especially if you're a West Coaster or a Californian, it kind of ends in like our desert out here, which is both this physical desert, but it's also the desert of, of indigeneity, the desert that we can't, we both tramped into with violence and that we can't really uh, ever really claim. So we're sort of lost in this desert, which is also, and this will be my final point, I think, what Baudrillard called the desert of the real. That the, that the idea of the desert of the real is that the real doesn't have a symbolic uh, buffer around it. That when you're really in the real, whether it's the real of your own pathology, the real of the, of the violence of contemporary society on a structural and systemic level, the real of weather in a period of climate change, that that real is a desert. It doesn't mean that it's completely devoid of life and possibility. It just means that you don't, you're not getting any easy shade. <laughs> you got to look for your sources of life uh, in this desert. And so, I, I, for me, when I hear him say that in that quote, this one, this you know, marvelous desert is it is full of marvels, and it's going to be full of marvels. Some of which will be technologically created and deeply uh, mischievous and and manipulative. But also, I think new forms of of being together, of creativity, of art, of a kind of last ditch exuberance for the values that we that a lot of us hold really deeply, and to be okay in the desert, you know, make friends with it. some more weird stuff in this guy. I've seen a few more since the last time we talked about it, and I just don't know what to make of it all. 
Now, if you're wondering if every time I walk outside, I see a flying saucer, the alien armada, or whatever, I would have to say no. I have maybe seen something that just sort of maybe blows your mind maybe twice a decade. Averaged out over the many decades. Sometimes you see a weird thing in the evening or night sky, and you go inside and you check the International Space Station traffic... You check the Starwalk app to see if maybe it's a satellite. Check the news to see if maybe Elon Musk launched a couple of hundred mini internet satellites that start off together like a space train. And sometimes you might read up on the secret robot space shuttle that the Air Force keeps in orbit for years at a time. And you can check one of those flight trackers, those live radar trackers, if you see a weird plane. Every time I check a flight tracker, I realize there are nearly as many private jets in the sky as commercial jets carrying the regular people. So one of the weird things I saw over the summer was a very fast, high-altitude something or other that had a single white pulsing light, no other navigation lights, and this thing was fast. It was at least twice as fast as the commercial traffic you could see in line for LAX, for Los Angeles International Airport, 100-plus miles out, but still in line. Anyway, this thing really caught your eye. And then behind it, I'd say about your thumb's width behind it. What is that, five degrees? Well, it's a clearly defined V-shaped craft of some kind. And it's got four very large round lights, large white unblinking lights, two on either side in the V pattern. And you can actually see the structure just a little bit like a carpenter square. They were going roughly in the direction of Point Conception, for what it's worth, and not towards Los Angeles, and not north, like the higher altitude traffic headed to the Bay Area or the Pacific Northwest. What was that? I guess I'll never know. about it for tonight for tonight's episode of desert oracle radio and if you really can't get enough of whatever it is we're doing here you might want to watch the new episode of ancient aliens on the history channel season 14 episode number 20 the raid on area 51 so I make an appearance. That's really all I know about it. It premieres at 9 p.m. on the East and the West Coast, Friday, November 15th, but you can watch the repeats online or through whatever streaming system you've got. Ancient Aliens. How about that? Thanks to Red Blue Black Silver for the soundscapes. Thanks to our guest tonight, Eric Davis. Thanks to Luna Arcana editor, Rohini Walker, who was on last week's show. But the recording was a disaster, so we will have to have her back next time in the new Desert Oracle Radio Studio. You can pick up a copy of Luna Arcana here in the high desert, pretty much wherever you get your retail copies of Desert Oracle. And thanks to all of you for making the time to listen to the program, whether on the radio or the podcast. And you can get our podcast from iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, anything that plays podcasts. Get our print journal all over town. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram if you haven't deleted all that garbage. And thanks to the first 51 of you who pledged a couple of dollars or more to become members of 
our Desert Oracle Institute. You get my eternal appreciation. From Amboy to Zizek's and across the Great Mojave Wilderness, this has been Desert Oracle Radio, and I am your host, Ken Lane. We're going to be doing campfire stories at the Ace Hotel in Palm Springs the night after Christmas and the night after New Year's if you're in town. Come on by. It's free. We'll see you next week. Good night from the Voice of the Desert. <laughs>